Hello, Cachimbonas. Welcome to episode 38 of season five of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, that prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. This is the part one or the English language version of a great interview that I did with Juan Pablo Garnum of the Princeton Eviction Lab. He and others there are doing a project looking at the effect of eviction on undocumented people. The lab is looking to collect stories, anecdotal evidence of the ways that eviction has impacted the undocumented community because Latinx people and also the undocumented community more broadly, those are overlapping groups, but not completely the same, obviously, are not represented in the numbers that eviction courts have for defendants who have been evicted. But we do know that this is a phenomenon that very much impacts Latinx community and the undocumented community. And policy folks are kind of trying to uncover what, it, why is that? What does this mean? How are exactly the undocumented community experiencing evictions if they're not going through the formal court processes? And what does that mean as well for their lives and how they move forward with housing afterward? It was an amazing interview and I hope that you all enjoy it. If you want to support the podcast, which again is a labor of love, something I do because I'm passionate about the things that I talk about here, but don't really make any sort of profit at all from, you could join the Patreon community for three, five, or ten dollars a month. You get access to the Lit Review, which is an online book club where I discuss timely texts with other women of color. If you can't support financially right now, a completely free way and a very, very appreciated way to show your love and support for the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. It helps the podcast gain more an increased listenership and gives us more visibility. You can also follow at Radio Cachimona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I hope that y'all enjoy this episode. Bye. Hello, Cachimbonas. Today, I am very excited to have Juan Pablo of Princeton's Eviction Lab here to talk about eviction and how it's an issue that is particularly impacting undocumented people. But before we get into all the details, Juan Pablo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. No, I'm very happy and excited about this conversation. I wanted to ask about the Eviction Lab project. I was mentioning to you that a few years ago, I reviewed the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond for my lit review segment. I thought it was an amazing book. And Matthew Desmond helped start up the eviction lab. So I wanted to ask, mm -hmm. what is the goal of the project and what brought it about? Yeah, so a lot happened after Matt published the book. Uh, one of the things that happened is that he was able to start working at Princeton University and creating this, this research center that is the eviction lab. And what the lab tries to do is research to be able to explain and make more visible the eviction crisis and the housing crisis across the country. So 
We've done a lot of different research into housing issues and in particular eviction. But one of the most interesting things that the, that the researchers in the lab, including Matt, have created is this national database of evictions. Finding data on evictions, people now are a little bit more used to, to knowing about it, but it used to be super hard and it still is. But now we have this, this national map, which allows us to have estimates for uh, eviction filings and eviction rates for every county in the 50 states between 2000 and 2018. And the other, the second big project that they that they have that also gets a little bit more attention sometimes is that at the start of the pandemic, there was a, a very clear like intuition from the researchers at the lab that we needed to have more data or more recent data. So they started looking at where can we get data that is actually updated month to month. And they created the, the vision tracking system, which tracks, I think we're now in 35, no, 34 cities and uh, 10 states across the country. And that allows us to give a picture of what's going on right now. We, we wish we would have more places, but getting data that, that it's uh, reliable and that it's recent, it's really, really difficult in some places, including most of the West Coast, Chicago. But we still have a lot of data for places like Dallas, New York, Philly, New Orleans, uh, Boston, and uh, Phoenix, too. Uh, mm. and a bunch of other places that it's updated uh, month to month. How do you all get the data? Is it self-reported or some other mechanism? Yeah, we work uh, in different ways. Uh, we work a lot with partners in the specific location. We work directly with courts and the part partners work with the courts too. And that's kind of one of the main ways. Each, If you go to the, the eviction tracking system, each page for each state or city has a little explanation of how do we get the data? But yeah, sometimes it's very complicated. Actually, a colleague of mine is, is working on doing like a comparative project about data transparency on eviction across the 50 states. So hopefully we will be able to tell you a little bit more about how difficult and how easy it is in different places soon. Yeah, in terms of getting this data. That's really exciting because like you said, it's just hard to get reliable data about evictions. And mm -hmm. I can see how the importance of having the court data is because if you relied on self-reporting i feel like that would be super unreliable since oh yeah it's kind of it's a shameful thing and i don't know if people would really want to not that it should be but it is stigmatized and i think that a lot of people would be ashamed to report their own eviction and they're already mm -hmm. in a precarious place anyway so i'm looking forward to seeing the differences in what the outcome is of the transparency comparisons because yeah. I'm sure there's wide variation. Yeah, and I, I, I've played a little bit with it and I can tell you it's very interesting. I mean, there are places where the, the city or the state has a dashboard and they've already created a oh, system okay. that exists there. And there's others where they do, they make things really hard for you or like they just tell you that there's nothing. Right. or that they don't keep track of these things, which, yeah, it's it's crazy, to be honest. But it's a slow process, you know, to, you know, creating consciousness about the, the need for transparency about this data. I think comparing state to state and putting some pressure in that way in, like, making states, like, I think I think there's a lot of power in, in terms of the saying, like, you know what, your neighbor does to have this data. How come you don't have it? So hopefully, yeah, that project that project will help in that way. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about how the current economic situation is affecting renters in particular. There's rampant inflation and 
as an ongoing problem, there's stagnant wages, especially for people who have lower wages. So how have all of these things affected renters? Yeah, I mean, that's the story of the housing crisis since like for, for you know, two decades, right? If you look uh, at the data that shows like increases on housing costs and increases on, on wages, it just never catches up. It never mm-hmm. catches up. The cost of housing keeps increasing a lot more than what Americans in average make. You know, during the pandemic, we had some crazy things going on in terms of the housing costs. Uh, some places that were normally super expensive sadly saw like a, a slowdown. Some places that were that tended to be more affordable went crazy expensive. Uh, we saw that a lot of in a lot of places in the south with people moving to work from home. You know, in places like Jacksonville or you know, well, Phoenix is is mm-hmm. is, is a case of that. And now we are seeing prices stabilizing a little bit more, but, and, and you see like these reports in media um, that say like, well, the, the housing market slowing down. Uh, this is a renter's market. But we have to remember that this is actually just like a very, very, very small correction to a trend that has been going for decades of, you know, rental prices and home prices going up. So yeah, we, we are certainly uh, in a, Big crisis and a good reference to see that is the reports that the National Low Income Housing Coalition creates. They they create several reports that that show that for for most Americans, I mean, uh, housing is not affordable like almost anywhere in the in the country. And then if you are low income, uh, you're you're in in a much worse situation. Yeah, spending much much more than thirty percent of your income in housing so yeah because that's not a problem like we, what we see here and there is that yes like in some places we're starting to see more housing being built but but not necessarily affordable housing mm. and then that 30 percent threshold is kind of what's considered to be the goal 30 percent spending 30 percent or less on your housing is considered to be like economically healthy right it's the definition of a uh, cost burden uh if you're 30% spending 30% of or more your cost burden. If you're spending 50, I, I, this, I might be wrong on this, but I believe like if you're spending 50%, it's what it's called extremely cost burden. But at the same time, these, these are, these are very, these are questioned a lot of times, you know, because it's a very kind of random like line. Thirty percent feels like a lot already. You know, in an ideal world, it would be less. It it is it is a lot, but uh, what I've read is that there's not a lot of clarity why we set the line there. Uh, okay. But it's clearly like uh, you know a standard that has been set, and and it's a definition that helps you know kind of visualize everywhere how much are you spending on on how the on housing and how how big that item is in your budget. You know, and how have these trends of increased rental prices and stagnant wages impacted undocumented renters in particular? That's a good question. I think um, I sadly don't have a good answer. If we are talking about data, and that's why I'm working on this project. In general, any issue affecting undocumented folks is really, really difficult to understand. It's it's a it's a community of population that not only tries to remain outside of the radar, but also mm-hmm. has been forced 
to be isolated from, you know, public activity and like, uh, you know, public life in general. Uh, of course, as we know, we Latinos, we migrants, we love to use the city and to live in the city and to uh, take part of community life. So, I mean, as much as they try, they, we will still be there. Um, but but in general, if you try to analyze any number, any, any kind of like issue related to um, undocumented communities, it's going to be difficult to find data. And there's a lot of research, of course, related to immigration. We've seen like their estimates about like, you know, population, undocumented population here and there. You know, the Center for Migration Studies is a good source for that. Um, Pew Research also publishes estimates from time to time. But then if you look at the at the crossroads between housing and immigration, and, and especially housing and undocumented people, there's even less. If you start looking at how many papers there are about this, there's very few. And then if you look at it from a public policy point of view, I think a lot of like cities has, have started being proactive about serving undocumented communities in the last five, 10 years. But a lot of times those services are focused on, 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 on the issue of immigration itself and not necessarily talking about life in general, which of course, undocumented migrants don't just care about immigration. Mm -hmm. They care about having a roof. They care about their health care. They care about the education of their kids. They care about finding jobs. So I think we're still like very, very in a very early stage of that conversation, understanding more holistically like the, the immigrant experience and the undocumented experience in particular. How are you all working to bridge those data gaps? Yeah, so in, in the case of evictions, we talked just now about how much data now we have about evictions, but we were talking about the source for the data, and that source is, is courts. So it's court filings and court data. There's in some places where we can see some of the Latino experience, for example, reflected on that. We have some estimates and we have a big project coming up that will give us more insights on, on that. But in my experience, I always thought that the numbers were underrepresented. It was like weird, you know, like looking at numbers in some places, you would see that Black communities were over extremely affected by the Beijing crisis. Mm -hmm. But Latinos sometimes would have numbers a little bit worse than the white population. And of course, I'm not saying that all Latinos are undocumented, but, but you know, like, I think it's like a very high number, I don't know, 70 or 80 percent of the undocumented community in the U.S. is Latina. I, I had the gut feeling that like undocumented folks weren't represented in our data. So I started like thinking about ways of how we can see that experience a little bit more. Uh, and I started talking to experts, I started talking to advocates, legal experts, most people. And then I did a lot of reporting on this when I was in Texas in my previous job as a reporter there. And what you start seeing is that I mean, this is pretty obvious for people that work on these issues, but undocumented folks don't want to go to a court. And their yeah. relationships in many aspects, but of course in housing too, uh, live in the realm of informality. Uh, mm -hmm. So there might not even mm -hmm. be a contract. There might not be, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we study this if it's not in data? So, so the way that we try to, or that I'm trying to do that is, trying to collect stories from undocumented tenants that have experienced forced displacement, evictions, desalojos, evicciones in Spanglish, whatever you want to call them. So that's officially a Spanglish uh, word now, eviction. 
I've heard it like that. Yeah. I mean, some places they <laughs> say the that's the kind of word I would make up, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, the troca for, yeah, for, for Parqueo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favorite Spanish word is Cubans when they call cake. Cake. That's the best one. <laughs> El cake. Um, but um, yeah, so, so, so the idea is to collect these stories and through that kind of learn more, test some intuitions that we have from conversations that we've had with experts. But honestly, it's, it's a challenge because people actively don't want to talk about this and with good reasons, right? So yeah, it's, it's going to be difficult. I'm just starting this. I'm trying to throw my, my net very, very wide and trying to aim to, you know, community organizations, local media, uh, legal aid, everyone that can help me. Uh, to find people willing to tell these stories. And I have several options so people can, can talk to me on Zoom or phone. And I also have a, like an anonymous form that people can fill if they don't feel comfortable talking about that. So yeah, that's going to be the approach that, we, that, that we're trying to, hopefully we, we can get enough, enough stories that, that we can you know, draw conclusions from that, of course. Yeah. And I think it's important for the immigrant community to know that the reason that you would be interested in collecting this data is because you're trying to show through the numbers that this is a problem in the undocumented community, in the Latinx yes. community, in the ways that those overlap. And there are these data gaps that don't tell the full story. Like you said, there's maybe a lot of reasons why undocumented people would want to avoid eviction court and so would like mm -hmm. self-evict, quote unquote, before having to go through that formal process. And yeah. I think that capturing that nuance is really critical because like you said, you know, migrants are here to live full, happy lives. And to do that, you not only need to like resolve any immigration problems you might have, but also you need stable housing. So I think this is a really, really important project. And just want to voice that because I think, you know, like I was talking about earlier, it's, it's like a shameful experience. It just doesn't feel good. And, you know, it's probably something you just don't really want to think about after it happened. And just want to encourage people to share their stories because, what you're doing with the ultimate goal is to provide resources to people who are going through this process. And unfortunately, in the society that we live in, you know, kind of you do need that numbers based data, evidence based information to move that forward. And so I just wanted to kind of just say that explicitly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I um, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I mean, we not only do not, uh, do, not only I think undocumented community is extremely affected by this, whether that is like through a formal or an informal eviction, sometimes an illegal eviction. And mm -hmm. not only that, but also I think that there are particular characteristics of how undocumented folks, families, tenants uh, experience evictions that are, are different and make this situation more challenging than an average tenant in the United States. And I think that's, that's something that I really want to try to find. Uh, we have some ideas, you know, the, the fact that you are not going to court, that means that probably you're losing some time. Uh, you're yeah. losing the opportunity of contesting the case. The yeah. landlord a lot of times is not like proving or having to prove that this is, you know, a lawful eviction. So there might be some cases where, where the person wasn't, you know, allowed to evict you. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Like, for example, let's say someone tells you that the landlord tells you like, hey, you need to leave. I need the, the apartment for for my brother that it's coming. 
you know, that, depending on where you are, might not be legal. Right. And we will never know if you don't go through court or, well, yeah. And then on top of that, you have like uh, issues like language barriers, you know, so many people that receive a, a notification and they can't, they can't read it, you know, mm -hmm. they can't understand what it's in the notification. And I've had to, to translate the notification for people. There's, you know, some people that all their dealings with the landlords might be through their kids, you know, yeah, under eight kids that translate, you know, and that do this beautiful role of like translating for their parents. But at the same time, you know, that's that there might be all kinds of misunderstandings there. And of course, you can't uh, like a kid can advocate for you, uh, you know, if there's any dispute. And then um, uh, we've heard really interesting things in the in the pre preliminary conversations with experts. Like one, one person in, in, in California told me this thing that I keep thinking about. She was saying that with undocumented tenants, um, there's a logic, the logic of favor. The idea that because I am undocumented or because I don't have papers, the landlord is, is giving me a favor by allowing yeah. me to stay in this apartment. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And we already, in our regular dealing with landlords, there is a big imbalance of power. Imagine yes. how big it is and how much a landlord can get away with if there's this idea, oh no, this person is like, give me a favor, you know, by staying here. There's a, other things that will be a little bit more difficult to see, but I've heard that on occasions, landlords intentionally look for uh, undocumented tenants to, to rent because they know first that Latinos are hard workers. I mean, immigrants in general, hard workers, eh? but also maybe you might be able to get away with some things because they might not complain as much, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or you can even rent them for a little bit more. That's mm -hmm. all like, theories and um, it's it's going to be difficult to prove them but i've heard these kind of things you know uh so where i'm going with all this is that not only it's a, an invisible problem but mm -hmm. i think that there are very particular challenges if you are experiencing an eviction and you're undocumented that don't happen or that they don't happen to that level uh, to the average american renter I actually that framing of someone feeling like their landlord is doing them a favor for renting to them makes total sense to me just with how this country treats migrants in general. If you don't do that work of unlearning, that just becomes a framework that you adopt. So I think this is a really important project and I'm excited to see the outcomes of it, as you say, because these are kind of like informed guesses, but it'll be good to see the actual data play out and uh, i don't know if this is the right moment to say it but we have a website um people can like share i i think sharing these resources is is, is a really good of helping me and helping yeah. the project we have a website that it's um evictionlab.org slash um desalojos mm -hmm. and on that website we have a brief description of what an eviction looks like. I think a lot of people don't even know that because obviously, like most of us, we don't experience yeah. an eviction. So why would we need to know that there are different steps? And then then we worked a lot on creating like a simple message of what people need to know. Mm -hmm. So we have very three simple like ideas that people should know, especially if you're undocumented. Although like your rights, the laws and the 
possible like resources vary a lot depending on where you are in the states yeah, we have like social it. media kind of card postcard that people can share and then we have a whatsapp line where people can actually text us a message and ask questions tell us their situation and if we're able and we can find uh, some some resources for them we're going to share them with them and the the number it's plus one nine seven one four zero one two two one zero so that's plus one nine seven one four zero one two two one zero the number is in the in in our website too oh and lastly we have the idea for me is to ideally to talk to people in person or mm -hmm. by zoom or by phone but we also have an option of a of a of a form that it's there on the website that it's anonymous so if someone just wants to um, give us their experience like anonymously. They can fill up that form. It's I think ten or less questions, so it's super easy. They can do it in ten minutes. Yeah, and we want to give all those options for people to participate. And of course, if if you're not uh, undocumented or you're not experiencing an, an eviction, sharing these resources is a great way of helping. So we've talked about how laws differ and in the various states. Some states just have bad law when it comes to housing. How can renters protect themselves in places that do have housing law that isn't favorable to renters? All over the country, we mostly have laws that tend to favor landlords. So yeah. it's not like there are a lot of places where things are easy for someone experiencing an addiction. But there's some places where it's really bad. Like in yeah, Arizona, you there... can get evicted in like five days. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are places where things are very easy. The process happens quickly. And I think that's something to consider, the, the, the fact that you have to act. Because the process is so quick, you have to act quickly. Um, yeah, yeah the, the, I have like three advice that I give to everyone that I think are thought for, especially the worst case scenarios, places where, where things might happen very quickly and where there might not be a lot of resources. The first one People have to know that even though they might not have papers, they have rights in the U.S. Uh, and in terms of yes. housing, they can't be discriminated by origin, language, and a series of other factors that include, like, you know, if they have big family or if they have a disability, uh, some, some, disability. some other problem. Mm -hmm. Disability, sorry. Spanglish there. Um, <laughs> the if you're pregnant, for example, your yeah. color, your religion, your sex. There's a lot of things that landlords can discriminate, no matter where you are. In some places, there's even more factors. For example, in, I, I I believe in California, they can discriminate you for source of income. And there's been like occasions here and there where some states or cities have tried to make it illegal to rent to undocumented folks and that hasn't happened anywhere but okay. it obviously is something that threatens and, and makes us feel like a little bit more afraid of act on this thing and yeah. there, there's been a few cases where a landlord has threatened to call ICE or something like that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's really important to keep track of all, all of those things if that was on a text message uh, screenshot it because that can get the landlord in really like big trouble depending on where you are so yeah that's the first thing the second is that when you face an eviction, you don't have to leave your home until a judge orders it. Yes, a person can decide to leave wherever, mm -hmm. uh, whenever, but if you want to fight the case, you can go to court. And this sounds very, very obvious, especially for someone that comes from a low background, 
but a lot of people don't know that. I, and, and a lot of people might be afraid of going to a court, just even besides their, their, their immigration status, like it's, it's a place, place that we, we might fear, you know, just because it's a place that it's unknown. But yeah, you are allowed to dispute your case, but you have to act and you have to go to court and you have to be proactive. And there might be resources in, in your city and your state to learn more and even get help during the processing court. And the third thing, it's kind of related to that, is that I'm telling people, look for help. Mm -hmm. um, because it's very easy to, to you know, stay quiet and, and suffer this in silence. But there might be free legal aid in some locations. Sadly, not everywhere. There's a yeah. big legal desert, deserts for for especially undocumented folks related to housing, you might be able to find something. And that can totally change the outcome of your eviction. If there's no legal aid, there might be a, a community group or like a housing, mm -hmm. you know, group, a tenant union that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is probably very familiar with, you know, how these processes work, or they might have some money for rental assistance, or even they might be able to, you know, help slow down the process, which allows you to have more time to find another place and not end up, you know, in the street or in your car or like in some overcrowded place. So I think it's really important to to talk about it and to share your experience and search for solutions and for resources around. And uh, a good place for that is actually, uh, you know, we, this, this WhatsApp line that I was telling you, where we're trying to connect people to to services and resources. Uh, we also have a sister website called Just Shelter, justshelter.org, mm. that has resources, housing resources across the country. People can check on their state. If there's any error with those, uh, they can tell me and we can fix them. At the end of the day, I think talking about this thing can feel shameful, but it's worth it because you might end up you know, going through a rough patch, but then maybe you might end up solving the issue and, and avoiding something that has a huge impact in, in, in your life and your family's life. Yeah. yeah, agreed. And in Arizona, I think Southern Arizona Legal Aid is a good place to go if you need help with eviction defense. My fiance is a, an eviction defense lawyer there. Mm -hmm. And there's also the Arizona Center for Disability Law, which is taking on cases where there is that intersection of housing access and disability. So I, I actually, that's great to know for me, uh, uh, because before making this research public, I started reaching out to folks all around the country, trying to create a list of legal aid for housing that can serve people that don't have papers, uh, because that's the issue. Now we have legal aid organizations that help with evictions almost everywhere in the country, at least almost in every state. In rural areas, there might be less, but uh, the problem is that many of those don't take clients that are undocumented. So I've been trying to find organizations that actually serve people that are undocumented. And they can't because of the, you know, they receive federal resources and, and, and they got federal funds, so they have to be limited. Some find some kind of like way, uh, like a loophole, like let's say there's like someone in the household that, it's a citizen, but many of them can't. So I, I now have collected like around 40 or 50 uh, organizations that do this job. But there are some places like that have a lot of immigrants, like Florida or Arizona, 
uh, where it's been difficult for me to find to to be sure because I wanted to to be sure that these organizations do this. Yeah, and yeah, if we start talking about like places like you know Arkansas or you know Wyoming, that's even more difficult. Yeah. But in California, New York, Texas, to a certain degree, I've been able to find, especially in big cities, I've been able to find organizations that do this. Yeah, that list is really important because, as you say, there are funding limitations sometimes, but. There are also organizations that find creative ways around it because if you're a legal aid organization not helping undocumented people, like what are you doing? Like why are you even in the business of legal aid? Yeah, well, they can't. Sadly, they get money from the federal um, government, and I mean, in theory, creative. they can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not an expert on that, so I, I want I want to go in there, but I, that's what I've heard, you know. Yeah, I think there's always a way around. Yeah, there's been interesting cases. I, I, There's an organization that I really love in Dallas, the Dallas Eviction Advocacy Center, I think it's called, that they, they actually, it started during the pandemic, these, these lawyers that were like, we want to do something. Mm. And they actually fund themselves. That's uh, amazing. And they get like philanthropy and money that they've gathered in different ways. So they are, they, they are super free to pick and choose. I mean, a lot of legal aid organizations also are handling so many cases and they have mm-hmm. to decide, mm-hmm. you know, should we go and try to spend our, our resources in helping this person that might be, you know, I don't know, right now being threatened with a deportation or should we help this particular case of an eviction? So they are, these guys actually, because they don't have all these money limitations, they, they are more free to choose which cases and of course they are focused only on on housing issues i really wish that more cities would have something like like that center yeah yeah i think that's really critical so the last question well no one of the last questions i wanted to ask was if you could walk us through an eviction process and at what point a renter needs to legally leave the place where they're living you mentioned already that someone doesn't need to leave until they have a court order. Just wanted to like emphasize that again, because I think that's really important, yeah. especially amongst undocumented folks. I think they get very intimidated yeah. when legal processes starts, you know, obviously understandably so. So I just wanted to have you walk us through that. I'm going to, I might get the words wrong because I've been talking a lot about this, but in Spanish. So now I have. You can like also do it in two. Spanish. It's okay. You can do oh, yeah. No, let's do it. Let's do it in English. And I'll okay. use the, the word in Spanish too. So okay. and you can correct me if you want. But everything starts with, in most states, uh, this might vary a little bit here and there, but uh, in general, we have like five steps to an eviction process. First, uh, there's some kind of notification that the landlord has to provide to the tenant that he's going to start the process of eviction. And these, a lot of times, is a paper, like a letter. I don't know, but it might be a text message, email in some occasions, but... There has to be a clear warning that the person is starting this process. Then the landlord presents or files an eviction in court. So the landlord goes to court and asks the court to start a process to evict this person. The third step is that there's going to be a hearing on an audiencia where the court hears the case. So there's going to be a judge. The landlord or a representative of a landlord will go to court. Sadly, in most cases... No one is there on the side of the tenant. And if the There's no right there, to an attorney. 
even if there might be like there's no right end to journey except in some places yeah this, there's a growing movement towards like rights to counsel in eviction cases but yeah having an attorney there can change the outcome for tenants a lot of times sometimes they mean that they get to have some some extra days you know it also kind of like might promote let's put it that way a conversation that can lead to another outcome like mediation or some kind of payment plan so then during the hearing or after the hearing the judge and it's a decision they they will decide a sentence and that and if that sentence says that the the eviction can keep going there's going to be the last step the fifth step that is the execution of the eviction that normally looks like when sheriff constable sometimes a private officer uh, will come to your place and remove or observe while you, you remove your stuff yeah and as you were saying in some places it can happen super quickly in some places it might take a little bit longer but it's a process that it's important to be conscious with all the steps because i think a lot of people get overwhelmed and think that they have to leave like right now mm-hmm. and no the truth is that technically they could stay for a little bit longer they can go through the process and they might find resources in the process you know or they might find like other solutions in 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 that process yeah I appreciate that. And I appreciate you encouraging people to take full advantage of the due process rights that they do have, because, you know, even if the outcome is still the same, like people do appreciate having extra time to get their stuff together and and find another place to live. Yeah, it's a complicated decision, I have to say, because even if you would have papers, your eviction can leave a stain in your record, which might be might make it more difficult to access to housing later. But sometimes it even if you don't go to a hearing, it's still like it's marked somewhere. So, so right. yeah, it's, right. it's, it's very difficult to, to decide yes or no. And then, you know, I think right now in most of the country, going to court is safe for someone that it's undocumented. But we never know, you know, mm-hmm. and we never know mm-hmm. what might happen in the next government or if a particular state becomes a little bit more aggressive against Immigrants, we're seeing, you know, pretty worrisome trends in Florida. So the decision to go to a public place like a court, although yeah. we, I would like to say that I would, that I, w- I would encourage it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the future is going to look like, you know. Um, yeah. So, so it's it's a complicated decision that everyone has to take. Uh, but what it's important to know is that they, in, they could, you know, slow down the process and they could, you know, go through the process of going to court. Yeah. So thank you for that. I think that's super useful for folks to know. And the last question that I've been asking interviewees this season so that we don't end on a note that doesn't feel inspiring is what has been inspiring you lately? I was talking about this with a colleague. Um, I made the I've been thinking and working on this project for like two years and I just made it public and started asking for people to to reach out maybe a week ago or something, or a couple of like weeks, some days ago. And I've already started getting some messages from people that are, you know, going through evictions in different places. And it's really, really rough. Uh, you know, it's cases that are like people that are have not a lot of resources, cases with experiencing serious health issues, families with a lot of kids working their asses off to pay rent, to pay what it's owed. But it's been kind of uh, inspiring also for me to to see that there is this need, 
because it just reassures me that you know that we need to tell these stories, that we need to make this more visible, and that we need to draw attention to this issue. Yeah, that's on the on the issue in particular about evictions and housing. Then, yeah, inspiration comes in so many other ways too. Mm-hmm. Watching movies, mm-hmm. reading books, trying to laugh, trying to talk to your friends. But yeah, hearing hearing the the, the stories of these people, of these folks, like these parents that you know are working really really hard to to try to find a solution. It's it's very it's it's weird. It's really sad and disheartening. But at the end of the day, it kind of like pushes me to, or I think. Yeah, it kind of gives you some 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 push to know that what you're doing is worth it, I think. Yeah, yeah it gives you purpose. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, Juan Pablo, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with me. Would love to hear more about your project as it develops. And I hope that this reaches a lot of folks and that your project grows. Yeah, we can catch up later if you want in a few months or in a year um hopefully i have more stories to tell and and we can talk about specific things but thank you so much for this opportunity and the conversation has been super fun so i love to to nerd out about these things yes awesome all right well i hope to catch you when i enjoyed this interview bye thank you for listening to radio cachimbona Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette also prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. Again, if you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona is the best way to do so for $3, $5, or $10 a month. You get early access to episodes like these or exclusive access to the Lit Reviews, which are book club style chats. Also, another amazing, super, super, super helpful way to support the podcast is to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leaving ratings and reviews really helps podcast with visibility. Thank you all so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Cachimbonas! <laughs>